Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 8th, 2016. Uh, this is episode 1844 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. That means this is a show that you guys basically create by sending me your thoughts, your questions, your opinions, your news pieces, your videos, you name it, to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, making sure to put the letters TSPC as though they are a word, TSPC for the Survival Podcast, all in one group. Uh, so TSPC, question for Jack. TSPC, comment for Jack. TSPC, Jack, you suck. TSPC, Jack, no, you don't. That other guy's wrong. Whatever you want to do, right? You send that to me, and it gets through my screening to end up on a show like this today. I have quite a bit for us to cover today. Uh, I have a question from someone on making yogurt cheese. What the heck is it? How the heck do you make it? And why should you? I have answers to all of those. More on the 21-foot rule because of my comments about it being ridiculous, maybe they weren't taken totally in context. I don't know. We'll revisit that. Uh, a seminar is coming up with Daniel Salatin. Of course, that's the son of Joel Salatin in Louisiana. That'll be a quick one. Just tell you about it and uh, what it's going to be about, where it's going to be, and where you can learn more about it. It'll probably be less time than it took for me to talk about it so far. Um, I have a serious question from somebody. How would you deal with uh, a serious crime? like let's say murder or rape, in an anarchist society. How would you handle that? Uh, next, thoughts on cryptocurrency speculation as an investment. All these new cryptocurrencies uh, are coming out. What's wrong with throwing 50, 100, 200 bucks at every new one as they come out and just let them sit there and see what happens? And then on automation, IBM's Watson. If you're not familiar with IBM's Watson, you haven't been paying attention. Maybe that's actually a good thing, but Watson is this... Uh, experimental computer by IBM that can have conversations with you and things like that. Um, Watson has done something human doctors failed to do. They've gotten the right diagnosis, and it's probably going to save this woman's life. An interesting thing to look at. And then if we do see a continued exodus from the public school system, which is actually the what? What do we call it, folks? The government school system. If the government school system continues to have its ranks depleted, as more and more people turn towards self-directed learning, unschooling, homeschooling, etc., will the government ever turn around and more heavily regulate those things and try to keep control of what it has, which is the minds of our youth? And if so, what would we be able to do about it? What might it look like when they did it, etc.? Before we get into all that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help taking care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1844, because the episode is 1844. I have... 
Karl Marx and the Opium of the People. And I have Armageddon is Now, or maybe later. And in other news, Sarah Bernhardt is born in Paris, France. She will become a dramatic actress and early film star and earn the nickname The Divine Sarah. Samuel Morris sends a telegraph message from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, What hath God wrought? The Bible quote was chosen by the wife of the first commissioner of U.S. Patent Office. No conflict of interest there. Uh. Uh, and the YMCA is founded in England. A Bible study group grows into a place where young men can keep spiritually and physically fit in the city, where the base of temptations of the industrial age abound. And, of course, then later it would become a village people song. Before I read the segment I'm going to read for you, I want to comment just on how the world's changing. Right in this time in history, the 1840s, things are changing so fast. People had to be looking at what was going on around them and almost wondering if everything was falling apart or if it was all becoming something amazing. It was so fast, so rapid, and so many different things. So this young lady is born, Sarah Bernhardt. All right? uh, I call her young lady. She's been dead for over almost 100 years, I guess. Almost 100 years. But here we have a person being born at this point that will one day be on movie screens. Remember, we started this journey out with Mongol hordes and stuff like that, and some people thought the earth was flat. Some people still do, but okay. right? Um, the bubonic plague. We, we've now come to a point where the people that we're talking about we have photographs of, and in some cases we have video of. And imagine having grown up on the American frontier and not knowing anything approaching even electricity other than some guy named Franklin a hundred years ago flew a kite and a lightning bolt did it. And all of a sudden, you start to have this major revolution in technology. And what it must have been like for people born in the 1840s who lived into the early 1900s. And, you know, people that were born maybe right around the time of the Civil War and were, you know, young enough to to live into the 1920s and see World War One, but old enough that they do remember the time of the Civil War, what, what that change must have been. Just kind of keep perspective because it's going to go a lot faster as we move forward with technological innovations. And you'll begin to see the similarities of where we are today with the expansion of technology into places we can scarcely comprehend. What happened from 1950 all the way up till now were things that were expected. We're now moving into the realm once again of the unexpected. But what I will read for you is Karl Marx and the Opium of the People. Currently, Marx is writing for a socialist journal in France, and he is really stirring people up. He's writing short, pithy opinion pieces, and he's good at it. He has a genius for the perfect turn of phrase. This year, he's published a critique on Hegel's philosophy, and he intends to set Hegel right. Marx explains that religion has helped society endure its suffering by becoming an opium of the people. But religion has caused many problems as it has solved. Science and reason are the real answers to suffering. It is time to set aside humanity's crutch and grow up. Marx will start losing financial backing. As his agitation continues, eventually he will get the boot from France and head for England, where he will spend the rest of his life preparing his magnum opus, Capital. 
My take by Alex Shrugs. Slogans like religion is the opiate of the masses and from each according to his ability to each according to his need are not originally from Karl Marx. He borrowed those slogans and used them in short bursts to make the most impact on the reader. He, that was his genius. He was not a genius at building a coherent economic system. Sure, he wrote Capital, but it is a disjointed collection of short essays that require an army of commentators to explain. As a historian, Paul Johnson put it, Marx was a writer in the Jew Jewish Talmud style. Uh, I studied the Talmud, and it's really tough. Was Karl Marx Jewish? Yes, technically. He was, but raised as a Christian after his father converted. Exactly how he developed it, a Talmudic writing style is a mystery. Marxism itself depends on a strong central authority, and is supposed to be an evolution beyond religion. Like the street preacher warning that the end is near, Marx warned of the coming collapse of capitalism. What collapsed was his own economic system, because his followers were more uh, focused with the central control part of the system, rather than making sure everyone was reading out of the same hymnal. As an economist, Thomas Sowell pointed out, Marxism does not scale up. It can only work in small, homogenous groups. And my response would be, and what's wrong with that? What would be wrong with people that wanted to live as Marxists being permitted to live as Marxists, but not having the ability to compel other people who don't want to live as Marxists to live as Marxists? Or what would be wrong with a system where people could choose how much collectivism they wanted to engage in and how little they wanted to engage in? I'm just saying, and I'll leave it there instead of going deep into my own. Um, I'm more from this one, just when I read you know, Sarah Bernhardt being born in Paris, France, who will become an actress this year, the year 1844, and be on the big silver screen. Um, it kind of put in perspective for me with this history. So I mean, just how rapidly technology is changing for people in this period of time. And it, it brought me forward to where we are today and people not getting what's coming. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, first one of the day. The first question today is for me, and it's about, of course it's for me, this is all for me, right? Um, how do you make yogurt cheese, and why should you? What's, what's up with this yogurt cheese stuff? Well, yogurt cheese is so simple to make that it's a lot like biltong in that way. I think people are almost afraid to do it because they think something bad's going to happen, or uh, it's going to go bad, or it's going to make you sick or something, and then they do it the wrong way, which is in the refrigerator, which means the... Little active yeasties can't kind of sort of get moving again and kind of make it have a little bit more tang like it's supposed to. And so here's, here's the basics of how you do it. Um, you can do it the way I used to do it was with flour sack towels, towels or cheesecloth and I would hang it, but I was always trying to find a place to tie it, the bag from. So you just dump it into uh, a bag, either a couple layers of cheesecloth or a thing called flour sack towels. And I'll have uh, a link where you can see flour sack towels on Amazon. Um, these are towels that have no lint whatsoever, and I like them better than cheesecloth for this because they're pretty much going to last a very, very long time. Whenever I'm done making your cheese, I rinse it out in the sink and, and, and squeeze it out and, you know, then throw it in the laundry on, on the, you know, just the short cycle and, and fold it up and put it away. And we just use it over and over and over again. And really, you could probably just wash it in the sink and hang it up and let it dry and use it over and over again. Where cheesecloth's kind of your once-and-done type of thing. So that's part of why I like it better. Also, because cheesecloth, you have to use a lot of layers to keep it from mushing through. Where with flour sack towels, it, you just one layer and you're good. So I would make take yogurt, dump it in a bag, tie, it in, tie a string around it, hang it up like a sack from somewhere, and let it sit for anywhere from 12 to 24 hours. 
Room temperature is fine. I would not put this out in 110 degree heat. In the fall, when it's nice outside, I would hang it from the deck. Okay. I found a much easier way to do this though. You get a metal strainer, like a, like a vegetable strainer, just a metal basket strainer, and you place your flower sack towel into that and make a little nest. And you dump your yogurt in there, and then you just fold it over and you set that like in a bowl where the, the, the strainer actually, you know, sits above the bowl so that the, because what you're doing is you're letting the whey, right, drip out. So whenever you open it, if you open yogurt, it's been sitting a while, you might find some whey, some liquid on top of it. What you're doing is you're removing that. That's all you're doing to make yogurt cheese. Um, and that's, that's how you make it. And I'll talk about making it better in just a second. The other thing that I've started doing, though, once I started putting it in the basket, sometimes I'd want it to get a little firmer than it did. So once you put it in the basket, you just fold the flour sack towel on top of it. And get a big jar or something. Like I have a lot of these big jars of Mateo salsa because we use Mateo. It's like two pound uh, jar of salsa, 32 ounce jar of salsa. And uh, you just set it on top of there to add a little bit of weight. So any big heavy can of beans or something on top of the flour sack towel will accelerate the dripping of the whey and, and get quite a bit of it out of there. When it's done, you just take it and you, you put it in a bowl or a container and store it in a refrigerator. That's it. And you can taste it to see that it gets to the firmness and the tanginess that you're looking for to determine how long. You can leave it as little as six hours. Uh, I like to go more like 12 to 18 hours up to a full day. Now, making it better. It doesn't have a tremendous amount of flavor. It kind of tastes like tangy cream cheese. But it is a blank slate into what you can put your own desires, right? So one of my favorite simple ones is I take two cloves of garlic. I chop them up fine. I take up two, uh, and this is toward a big, a big container of yogurt, and two uh, jalapeno peppers. And I, you know, seed and dice those fine, uh, so there's no seeds or pith in there. You don't want it to be too hot. And you mix the garlic and the jalapeno into the yogurt when you put it into the towel. That way, it's really easy to mix, and you get it nice and evenly mixed, and add a big pinch of salt. Always add a big pinch of salt, no matter what you're doing. Uh, be careful not to add too much. You can make it too salty. I've gotten overboard with it. But, you know, just a standard pinch of salt to it. Uh, the one that I just made last night, and I just had a little bit before I started the show uh, for a little lunch snack, is um, I took uh, dehydrated garlic and dehydrated onions. I don't know, a big pinch of garlic and about four big pinches of dehydrated onions. I put them in a little ramkin dish and added some water to let them rehydrate. I took those, drained the water off them, put those in the yogurt, and added cracked black pepper and rosemary, mixed that up, put it in the little strainer, set a heavy you know, jar of uh, salsa on it, sat there till, uh, till about 10 o'clock this morning. And then what I realized to do is your yogurt comes in a container, a food-grade container, right? So when you take your yogurt out of your – now, this is if you're not making your own. Um, you take your yogurt out of that container and you make cheese out of it. Just wash the container out and set it on the counter. When your cheese is done, put it back in that container. And that way, when you're done eating, you know, you've used all the cheese and there's little specks of it and all, you just throw the container away. And, and that way you don't have to do dishes and you don't have to try to scrub that out after it's been in the refrigerator. It'll keep in the refrigerator for a couple weeks or even more once you've made it into cheese. Basically, think of it this way. Yogurt is a way to make milk last longer and yogurt cheese is a way to make yogurt last longer. Here's some thoughts, though. Number one, you, you want plain Yogurt, no fruits and stuff like that in it. Absolutely plain yogurt. The yogurt that you buy must say contains live and active cultures. 
not made with live and active cultures, contains. You don't want a pasteurized product that was all those things were killed. Uh, it's not going to make a very good cheese for you. Your yeasties are not going to wake back up and start going to work. And the little, not actually yeasties, your little lactobacillus bacterium are not going to wake up and start going back to work and gnaw, gnaw, gnawing on your yogurt. For you guys that are doing the low carb thing, yogurt's full fat, real yogurt. And real yogurt is only real yogurt if it's whole milk yogurt. Is not exactly high in carbohydrates to begin with. But when you do this process and you drain that whey out, that whey takes a lot of the carbohydrates that are in there with it when it goes away, when the whey goes away. So that's, that's even going to reduce the carb count even more. So you want a whole milk product. You want nothing really but, you know, milk and bacteria cultures for your ingredients. However, you may find it difficult to find a whole milk yogurt product that has nothing else in it. One of the ones I use is made by Cabot, and it has whey protein in it. And it's called, it says it's Greek-style yogurt. Well, here's what they're doing. And that means it's thick, okay? So the whey protein thickens it. I've seen others that have a little bit of uh, vegetable gelatin in, in them, and it's the same thing. They're trying to do a Greek-style. In, in Greece, yogurt is either made with pastured goat's milk or pastured sheep's milk. And it's much closer to cheese when it's yogurt than our yogurt is. It's not it's not thinny and thin and runny at all. So they're trying to make a pseudonym for it. It makes fine yogurt cheese. It does. You don't get quite as much whey out of it. It doesn't reduce by as much, which makes sense since it's already firm. Um, I can't remember the brand, but in my area anyway, Albertsons carries a brand of plain yogurt that is made with whole milk that I actually like better The stuff I just made, I made with Cabot because I was at Brookshire's and that's what they had. Making yogurt's easy. I'm not going to go into it now, but the reason I got into just buying the yogurt and making yogurt cheese is that I frankly don't have time to make yogurt, you know, multiple times a month. I really don't. And I don't eat that much yogurt. Pretty much I eat yogurt cheese and I make about a batch a week. So it's just easier to buy a good quality product. Uh, if you can find one, again, whole milk yogurt. And make your yogurt cheese. And there's no limits to what you can do with it. Dill is amazing in it. I've done uh, basil and garlic is another great combination. Uh, just just black pepper. And it is, is a really good thing. It can go with almost anything. Um, why you should make it. What you're doing when you make yogurt cheese is you're, you're actually increasing the body count of all those little good guy probiotic lactobacillus bacteria that belong in your stomach. You know the reason they have Jamie Lee Curtis out there, you know, saying all women should eat yogurt because it'll make you regular. That's what it is. Obviously, there's no fiber in it. It's, it's, it's good, healthy gut bacterium. So you're actually by letting, and it's not going to go have the big party it does when it makes yogurt because you're not going to hold it at 110 degrees. You know, room temperature is 70, 80 degrees, but it's enough that those little guys kind of wake up and start doing their thing again. And if you taste it before and after, you'll taste that, that increased tang going toward the sour end. So you've, you've upped that count. You've reduced carbohydrates and you've created a product that you could use just about any way that you would use, uh, cream cheese, but it's with probiotics. So it's good for you. It tastes amazing and you're limited in what you can do with it only by your imagination. Another thing I did, I mentioned the dill. I did dill and almond slivers. Um, Costco sells a huge bag of slivered almonds for cheap. I can't remember what it is, but they're organic. 
And you just take like a, a big handful of those, and they're already really thin slivers, but you just take like a, a butcher's knife, not a butcher's knife, a kitchen knife, chef's knife, and just kind of chop them, rough chop them, and you throw those in there with some fresh dill. That's, you know, just almond dill. I mean, you'd never be able to buy that. Uh, it's, it's, this is made all over the world. There's different things that it's called. Lebna is another thing that's called. Usually that's done though with some honey. Um, it certainly can be used if you're, uh, low carbing it. It goes good on vegetables. It goes good on low carb crackers. It's good standalone. I remember Patrick Rohrman from Empty Knives was here for one of my workshops and I made a batch of this after the workshop kind of as a, a tonic to recharge after my workshop was over. And I to just grab a bit of this. He just grabbed a chunk of it, you know, and he's like, oh, my God, I could hammer that. He's like, you look at it like you want to eat the whole bowl. Like, you can have some more, but, I, you know, i got to save. It's, it's just great, and it's so simple. Now, I love Alton Brown, as in, you know, Good Eats chef guy. But the guy is a freak. He worries about things you don't have to worry about. And I recently saw an episode where he made some of this. He put it in the refrigerator to make it, and he said only let it go for about four hours. Um, this product predates refrigeration and it's made in places like Greece where they don't have a winter that we would think of it's the whole point of products like this is you know a cool pantry they'll keep for a weekend so don't don't ruin it by trying to apply our thinking today to it this is a safe product as any to make and again the thing you're looking for whole milk yogurt um, with no added ingredients if you can find it. If you can find, you know, yeah, just basically milk is your ingredient, then you, and, and bacterial cultures, you're good. But don't be afraid of the things like the whey protein and stuff like that. You don't want anything that's like a preservative additive, stuff like that, and it's got to say uh, live and active cultures. Okay, next up, I got a lot of um, kind of pushback on the uh, 21-foot rule uh, when I talked about how it's kind of stupid the way that people throw it around. And I got a variety of feedback. Some people said, oh, God, Jack, thank you for your slight rant on the 21-foot rule. And then other people said, well, you know, you should be practicing this all the time because you're going to die when a guy comes after you with a knife. And, yes, somebody really did write pretty much exactly that. So I got a variety of things. Uh, Neil sent me an email, didn't really comment on it one way or the other, but it's an interesting video and a write-up on gunfreezone.net. Um, and if you think it's like a anti-gun website, gunfreezone.net is like, you know, freedom for guns type of thing. Anyway, um, it shows that the tooler drill is what also the 21 foot rule is called in real life, where an officer confronts a suspect. This is a pretty long distance, uh, uh, video, but it is graphic. And, um, yeah, this looks like one of those justified shoots. I mean, I don't know why the officer confronted the man in the first place, but, The shooting itself, if it was me, I'd have shot the guy. I would have absolutely shot the guy, um, no doubt about it. And this officer's life was in danger. He took correct action. But what you see in this, uh, let's talk the 21-foot rule for those that maybe don't know that term. The 21-foot rule is generally that an attacker with a knife coming after a person with a gun within 21 feet will more than likely be able to wound or kill the guy with the gun before the guy with the gun can shoot him. Right, that's the belief, and um, the, the reason that I ran it on is what I'm so sick of is this concept of the guy that's got the gun has the gun in a holster, right, and then a guy with a knife runs at him, screaming like some crazy guy trying to stab him in the face, and the guy with the gun fumbles to get the gun out. By the time he gets the gun out and up, the knife guy's on him and stabs him. 
And this is, you know, a preposterous way to look at things because what I said is, let's say I have the gun out and I'm 21 feet away. And, and I go first. Well, you're dead. I'm going to shoot you. You're going to die, you know. Um, in this instance, what you see happen is this officer is physically touching distance away. Like, he can reach out and touch the guy. I think he actually does touch him on the shoulder once in the altercation. The guy starts flipping out and grabs a knife out. Well, the cop immediately does what he's supposed to do. He backs away, and he draws down on the guy. When the guy runs at him, the cop shoots him multiple times, and the guy gets really, really close before he goes down, and it looks to me like the final shot's a headshot. Okay? And this would, you know, make a case for, hey, this is reality here. But this is the problem with the thinking of the 21-foot rule. That you're just going to stand there and let this guy stab you when he gets there. You're not going to move. The, 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 the whole issue that I have with the 21-foot rule, or the, 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 the tooler drill, is not the practical application of it. It's the, the, the nonsensical mythology around it. The belief that you are better off with a knife inside of 21 feet. That's Maybe I wasn't clear. That's my problem. Because there's a lot of people that say that. If I'm within 21 feet and I have my knife, I win. No, you don't. No, you don't. You just don't. What you end up with is gunshot wounds, and you probably end up dead. Now, it doesn't mean you might not injure or seriously hurt or maybe even kill the other guy, but the person with the gun, unless they're not trained at all, is going to get that gun out and shoot you. And the other side of this is, if someone's trying to come after you with a knife and you don't have a gun, is it a guarantee that they're going to be able to kill you with that knife? Or are you going to fight back and attempt to gain control of the knife? Okay, so what happens to people with a gun is they become overly dependent upon the gun. There's a point in the conflict where you have to begin to manipulate the other person's body so that you can deal with the attack that you're under. And what you see in all of these drills and all these, they're not really even drills. They're like people trying to prove a point and prove it stupidly is the guy with the gun just pulls the gun out, stands flat, and tries to shoot the guy, and the guy gets to him with the, the rubber training knife. Okay, move. Get to, And that's what this cop does. He doesn't only just back off. When the guy charges him, he steps to the side as he shoots. Every step you take makes that person have to take one more step to get to you. Right? That buys time. And there's nothing wrong with the concept of training for that type of an attack. Okay? There's nothing wrong with it at all. But the mythology is what's wrong. That, again, that it's, it's not so much that a person with a knife can get to a person from 21 feet in with, with a gun. It's that that person has the advantage. There's this, like, I don't know where this mall ninja crap all came from. But that's, that's a, I see it in message boards. I see people, I see it in, in, in TV shows. I was, I, I like the show Criminal Minds for how stupid it gets sometimes. I mean, they put some real dumb shit in there. But overall, I like the show. And there's an episode on there where, uh, they're working in consort with this police officer for an Indian reservation. He's an, you know, an Indian. And, uh, he, he quotes the 21 foot rule. And he carries a knife instead of a gun. Right? And he's like, inside 21 feet, I win. No, you don't. That's, that's where it's preposterous. So hopefully that makes more sense uh, with me kind of revisiting that topic. Th the other thing is, 
Just because someone cuts you doesn't mean you die. Just because somebody shoots you doesn't mean you die. But what's easier, to shoot somebody five times or to cut somebody in a vital area five times? And there's... When you look at the wound of a, of a, of a, a bullet versus the wound of a knife, both have advantages and disadvantages over the other. A bullet generally will penetrate deeper than a knife. A bullet from you know, a modern center fire handgun round will usually penetrate either very deep into and dump its energy or actually have an exit wound. Where a knife's only getting in as far as the person that's stabbing has the ability with the blade, its length, plus you know, when you try to stab somebody with a knife, they generally don't stand there like a piece of you know, meat, like a knife demo on YouTube where they hang a, a pig up and a big fat guy from Cold Steel stabs it with a knife all the way in. People don't sit still when you're trying to kill them. I don't know if you know that or not. But that said, a bullet takes a straight line trajectory through where a knife wound can often be more hemadratic than a gunshot. How many times have you heard of stories of a person getting shot but the bullet missed vital organs or something like that because it took that straight line path unless it hits bone and tumbles or, or what have you. Where a knife, even if it goes into a place where the bullet might have kind of went through without immediate lethal consequences, if it's moved or ripped or, or sliced in or out, it can expand that range laterally. So a, a knife wound can be far more deadly than a gunshot wound Right size knife, right impact area versus the opposite with the gunshot. So it's not that a person with a knife isn't dangerous. In fact, knives have been used throughout history to kill more people than guns outside of military conflicts. And across the world where society's disarmed, they're still the number one choice of criminals. And they're very effective in places without guns, by the way. And I think what what people need to understand is all deadly weapons are deadly. That's why they're called deadly weapons. And each has its own inherent advantages and disadvantages. But if knives were superior to guns, okay, we would fight wars with knives. And we don't. In, in the military, they teach you, if you are using a knife, even one attached to the end of your gun, something's gone wrong. Things have not gone to plan, and you are in a bad situation. And you can believe all the hype around movies that you want of the guy coming in silently, still letting the guy in the neck or whatever uh, as a special operator, but there's better ways to do that, and uh, those guys tend to use them. So just don't believe the hype. It's not that we shouldn't prepare as armed citizens to deal with the situation, but this mythology bugs me, if you can't tell. Anyway, I do have that uh, that article and video link from the show notes if you want to take a look at it. Next, a real quick announcement. Uh, Daniel Salatin, Daniel Salatin's son, is doing a workshop at um, Laughing Buddha Nursery in Louisiana. It's in uh, Mellotry, I guess is how you say it, Louisiana. And it is going to be on, um, let me see, what October 22nd from 8 to 4 p.m. It's going to be 275 bucks. This workshop is for anyone currently involved or thinking about getting involved in farming or other roles in farm-to-table movement, uh, market managers, employers, uh, agricultural professionals, hunters and property owners, land management professionals who wish to increase population of deer, quail, turkey, etc. through prescribed grazing, fans of Polyface Farms, Joel Salatin and Daniel Salatin, 
what you will leave with, an understanding of pasture livestock systems that Polyface uses, how Polyface raises and pastures processes their livestock, Polyface marketing strategies and how they're building their customer base, uh, answer, answered questions about Polyface's farming operations and understanding of how to get access and build networks for waste streams, strategies that you can use to customize and enhance the ecosystem on your property, and a working knowledge of electric fence systems including solar grid tide and netting wire. Again, 275 bucks, and you can just uh, go to survivalpodcast.com, look up today's episode, 1844, and you'll see a link in the show notes where you can learn more about that. If you're interested, told those good folks over there at Laughing Buddha Nursery, I would put it out for them today. So I have fulfilled my obligation. All right, so uh, next question is a question on anarchy. And uh, this, this question's, you know, a complicated one. And it's from John. John says, how would an anarchist society deal with a serious crime? Details. Forgive my ignorance here. Maybe you covered it and I missed it. I know you've been trying to stay away from anarchist discussions lately, but I've been thinking about it a lot since listening to your perspective in the last few years. I've not been trying to stay away from anarchist topics. I just haven't been getting a lot of questions on them. That's all. Anyway, a guy murders another guy for 10 bucks in his wallet. How would an anarchist system deal with this? Unorganized mob rule would be nasty. Democratic rule by the entire group could be nasty, too, and may not be a fair deal for the accused. Racism, for example. I picture this scene from Holy Grail, and I'm not going to play it, but um, it's the scene with the witch. Burn her, burn her, you know, right? And they, if she floats, she's a, if she weighs the same as a duck or, or more, she's a witch. That one, right? And I can see that, too. I agree. Again, I'm a noob to the anarchist way of thinking here, so be gentle. Hope you meet. Hope to meet you out here in Colorado this fall. Any update on that? Thank you for your hard work, man. We appreciate it. John. Uh, as far as the, the thing that was supposed to happen in Colorado, that did not fund, and we will not be going forward with that, so I haven't been asked about that in a long time. Uh, I thought that the folks behind that went out and basically told everybody, hey, we're, we're not doing it, but... Um, there was supposed to be a big workshop I was going to teach there, Michael Jordan, uh, some other people. And I, I, I think that the fact that they ran it on a GoFundMe campaign really kind of killed it. And uh, I don't know, maybe some will look at doing it again in the future, but that's not going to happen. We're going to be doing the, the workshop right here, though, in October. Um, you guys that want to come can go ahead and kind of start looking at your time frame. I'll probably have details out on it next week and probably the week after allow people to sign up for it uh but it is going to be the week of october let's see the the workshop will actually run october 27 28 and 29 with people able to set up their campsites on site on the 26th and stay over till the 30th which is a sunday um that that will be going on now the question part of the answer is I don't know, and we don't know, and, and, and no one really knows because we haven't been in the, given the opportunity to do this. But again, I think we have to come back to the concept of anarchy is not without rules, but without rulers. And whenever one of these questions gets asked, even if it's not meant to be so, because I, I really don't think John here is trying to use a silver, like, see, you can't do this, so therefore it can't work. That's where, where most people think it ends up. And this is why people say, well, there's no point in being an anarchist because it doesn't work. Well, it did work for most of mankind's existence. Human beings lived as anarchists longer than they've lived any other way. Okay? And if you just look at the history of mankind and when civilization actually crept into the picture, it was between 10 and 6,000 years ago. And it wasn't really until about 4,000 years ago that it really became something that was more 
the, the, the truism than it, than not. And even in today's society, we still have people living as true anarchists in the few places that hunter-gatherer societies are left alone to see their own means. So somewhere along the way in all that, we had people that would hurt and kill each other, and somehow people figured out how to deal with it. The silver bullet objection is, well, see, we have a way to do that now. Okay, well, let's just look at that and ask if, if we really do get a system that actually is equal for all. Racism could be a problem. So there's no racism in the modern justice system. Black people are not disproportionately part of the of the criminal justice system. Really? Right? You know, a, a jury of your peers today uh, is, is immune to the concept of racism or sexism or any other ism. That's that's a problem we're dealing with anyway. We we have a, a system that, that does a good job of trying to address that problem, but doesn't necessarily mean that it is. So it's not like our way is perfect, and therefore any other way has to be perfect to be as good or better. And I think that's the first thing we have to, whenever we look at things from an anarchist perspective, we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be as good or better than the existing system. So let's start out with how many things you wouldn't have to worry about dealing with from a standpoint of a justice type of system. Um, the possession of all plants and substances just takes that all away, right? Um, making sure people pay a tribute to their ruler, that goes away. That's We call that taxation. We call it fines. We call it regulations. If, if you just start to think about all of the things that the justice system concerns itself with that are against anarchist principles that involve the, the coercion and force behind victimless crimes, if there could ever be such a thing. We'll, we'll call them that because according to criminal codes and laws, they are crimes. I don't consider them criminal, but the government does. So if we took away that, how much would we be left with? The next thing would be how many murders are committed because someone just wants to kill somebody. I mean, the majority of violence committed today is committed over what? criminal activity concerning the drug trade. So right away you just dilute the whole thing down to now we have less to deal with. So as a pragmatic anarchist, instead of a purist asshole, which is what I think some people are, it, it, is, it is my belief and, and, and flat out it is, is factual that this society is not ready to go from statism to anarchy in a day. That there has to be some sort of a transition over time. So just on the time frame of things, it's one of those problems that we don't have to solve. We have so much work to do for so many generations to even try to get close to a minarchist, let alone anarchist society, right? That that's not a problem we have to solve. But we can, we can think about how this would, you know, be handled. Let's imagine you and I and 500 other people end up stuck on an island somewhere together. And we work things out and we figure out there's enough resources we can all survive and we begin to build our own little society. And one day Bill kills Tom. What would we do? Would we just sit there and let Bill get away with it? Well, likely not. Likely we'd come up with some uh, mechanism of dealing with it. We'd probably kill Bill. No pun intended with the movie. But we probably would. Bill would probably end up executed in some way. And it would probably become very unlikely that somebody else would want to kill somebody else at that point because it would be very clear that that is something that's not tolerated and we all depend on each other for survival in a situation like that. 
If someone committed a lesser crime, their, their punishment might be banishment. Don't come back or we will kill you. Go find a, the other side of the island and see what you can do with what, what you've got left. You might be putting them on a boat and maybe they're going to die, maybe they're not, but there you go. Good luck. Um, we just don't know. And you wouldn't know until you were put into a position where you, you had to deal with it. But personally, as a, as again, as a pragmatic realist, I would like to see us move in the direction of anarchism rather than try to become anarchists as a society. See, anarchism is a philosophy that coercion and force is wrong. And that would not even preclude some sort of a council or a even something that we, we might look at from a distance if you are far enough away to only see it from you know the 10,000 mile view you might even see it as a government or a state uh, a, a set of protocols and procedures for what you do when something happens that's not supposed to happen that's unusual i think where the area gets gray for people with the term anarchism is all anarchists are also libertarians and that's that's the statement the first time i heard it, it made me angry <laughs> It made me angry because I didn't understand it. So if it made you angry or you're saying that's not right, give me a second to explain it. Just because all anarchists are libertarians doesn't mean that all libertarians are anarchists. Okay? So the foundational component to libertarianism, the absolute solid formed foundation of libertarianism is the NAP or non-aggression principle. And that is that it is never acceptable for any person to force any other person to do anything they don't want to do or to do something they don't wish to do um, through the use of force and coercion as long as that person's not harming anybody else. That pretty much comes back to anarchism. That, that, that's the whole philosophical reasoning behind the concept of anarchism. What happens then is libertarians then say, oh, well, there should be some law against this and some law against that. And they, what they end up doing is talking themselves back into statism. And it, well, they just want a little bit of statism. They don't want to, they don't call me a statist. I'm a libertarian. Well, if you are for any law that compels anybody to do anything against their will, as long as they're not hurting anybody else, You're for, you're not adhering to the non-aggression principle, and then for, therefore you're okay with the state having that power authority to use that force. But if we say that we respect the non-aggression principle as an anarchist person, then when someone violates it, it is reasonable that some apparatus exists for the judicious use of force that responds in kind to their force. How does that work without a state? Well, it works the way it works in tribal societies. There's still a government. There's still a responsibility. There's still, but here's, here's where I think people get to where you're worried about things that you don't need to worry about. Today, there will be dozens, if not more people killed in the United States. And you won't worry one bit about it. You won't even think about it. There certainly will be killed people killed in other countries where they have their own system to deal with things, and you won't worry about it. What you'll worry about is if somebody you know or someone near you or someone part of something that you care about is killed. That's, or if a pretty little girl is killed and they put it on TV enough times, then you'll care. 
Because as a human being, your circle of influence and even your circle of concern is fundamentally limited. You can only concern yourself with so many things. So it, it could be that some group just over that way has their own way of dealing with things. And as long as there's not conflict between the groups, each group solves their own problems their own way. When you say something like that, people say it's fanciful, it's utopic, it's, it's, or it'll never work. Well, again, it's worked in human history for the majority of human history. Again, people confuse anarchism as a society without rules, where it's actually a society without rulers. In other words, if you had a, something that we would only use, the only word we could use to describe, the only thing we have is in our language for it today is a government. But that government existed 100% at the consent of the government. 100%. That means that any money that went to fund government activities would have to be 100% voluntarily given. And that government was required above all to adhere to the non-aggression principle, meaning that it could only intervene, it could only intervene when there was a victim to a crime. Not, and your, your feelings are not, you've not been victimized if your, if your feelings are hurt. Somebody that took your idea didn't victimize you. Somebody that uh, is burning their wood fireplace without the proper dampener, unless the smoke is blowing in your window directly, is not victimizing you, right? We actually had a clear definition of what victim meant. You could have an anarchist government. Now, it would require a fundamental change in human thinking. And I think this is the part that people don't get, right? Anarchists would be perfectly okay with everybody else being able to be as statist as they want as long as we don't have to participate. And people don't think that's possible. But it is possible. And you say, well, Jack, if you're going to be part of our society and use our roads, for instance, you know, you have to participate in that system. Okay, well, then you can have toll roads. I only have to pay if I drive. You already taxed the gas. I'm already paying for the roads. The, the gas tax is not an involuntary tax. It's a consumption tax. I need gas to drive on the road. Therefore, when I buy my gas, I'm paying a toll. That's okay. I'm okay with that. Somebody's got to pay for it. They can't just magically appear. Unicorns fart rainbows, folks. They don't fart roads, right? They don't fart rainbow roads, yellow brick roads, or any kind of road at all. They fart imaginary rainbows that politicians believe exist in their laws that say that we will wipe out poverty with a law and they think poverty will go away with their law. Right? That's, that's what unicorns do. Roads are flat things onto which vehicles move. They have to be paid for. But we can create a system where only those that use roads pay for them. And that's a voluntary system. We could have rules for those roads, common sense rules, And we can enforce those rules at the consent of those driving on the roads. And we're not that far off where we are right now if police officers, when pulling people over on the road, were only concerned with, you're driving too fast to be safe. Right? Not, oh, you don't have a sticker from the state that says your vehicle's registered. That, see, now, now we've gone to a thing where we're coercing people. You have to pay a tribute to the state. Right? Well, you got to use the road. I don't need the sticker. It's not necessary for the road to exist. We could solve all of these problems, but again, 
you have to just back up and think about the timeline to solve them before you worry about well, what we do about with a murder. You know, could we start with what are all the things that government does that it absolutely doesn't need to be doing right now that we could just eliminate? And I think you'd find like almost 80% of what government does could be eliminated tomorrow with no negative consequences. No negative consequences. Some of it would have to be phased out. Uh, programs like generational welfare programs and stuff like that, that would have to be phased out over time. But we could start that process tomorrow morning and phase out 80% of government over 15 years. And, and you would have, I'm not saying you would have no negative consequences, but the negative consequences would be outweighed by the positive results. So you'd still say, well, there's still some hungry people. There's still some, yeah, yeah, but there were more before. And I think that's that's what people have to do to get their heads around anarchism. And, and remember, bringing it always back to the philosophy. Do you think it's wrong for any group of people to force any other person to do anything they don't want to do or, or to prevent them from doing things they do wish to do if their actions are not harming another person? And if your answer to that is yes, I think that's wrong, then you are philosophically an anarchist. You're against compulsion of the state or of any other person. You're against any and all acts of aggression on someone other than for the purpose of self-defense. And instead of worrying about, well, how will we do this? How we, what we should be worrying about is how do we design solutions and how do we create coexistence? Some people like living in a state of society. If I'm an anarchist and I believe that it's, the coercion's wrong, and you want to live that way, I have no right to prevent you from living that way. All I ask is for the same treatment. You don't coerce me into your... You don't tax my wealth. You don't tax my income. You don't tax my property. If you want me to pay to use something, I, I can choose not to use it, or I can pay to use it. I'm fine with that. I do that every day. It's called a store. So if collectively the public with air quotes around it, gets together and builds a whole bunch of roads, and I want to use that system, there's a fee for it. I'm okay with that. And if you're not, you don't get it because you're already paying a fee for it. Again, it's built into the gas. Well, I know electric cars and all. So that doesn't mean that the fee system can't evolve and still become voluntary. The mileage tax, I don't even object to that. If you get away with, if you get rid of everything else, If you get rid of everything else, then it makes sense. Because now I'm paying for the service I'm using. Public land access, if you want to call it that. Government land access is a better word. But if, if you say, well, without all these other taxes and shit, you have to pay, if you want to use these, this, the National Park Service, right? They already have a fee. They already have, there's, you don't go to National Parks for free. There's already a cost. But if it was going to be a higher cost... Okay, then you better make the national parks really good so people will show up. That'll never work. It works for Disney. If Disney can have a park with all the shit they got going on, right, and people pay and that they make a profit on it with the number of employees, then, then you could have a park that's a bunch of woods with a couple gates and some rangers to help people to get in trouble, paid for with fees if it's worth having. It's it's not as hard as we make it out to be, but I'll I'll be the first to admit when you say things like what would you do in an anarchist society if a woman says a man raped her? But I go back to well, what do we do now? 
What do we do now? We have a set of, we're supposed to anyway, have a set of systems and procedures that guarantees equal treatment to all accused, and the facts are presented, and a jury of your peers makes a decision on that. We can't do that without the state of Texas. We can't do that without the federal government of the United States. That's impossible to figure out without a government. Seriously, it's not that complicated. Think about all the amazing inventions we've been talking about, all the technologies that we've seen come out in the history segment over the last you know, 100 episodes. They had courts of all different types long before any of that stuff. Some of them may have been fair better than we have today. Some of them were far worse, for sure. But it's not like we can't do it. In the end, you'd have to come up with a system of procedures to determine guilt or innocence and appropriate punishment for a crime that actually had a victim. There's nothing against anarchistic principles there at all. Let's take another one. This one comes from JD. It says... Um, Question, buying new cryptocurrencies as they come on the market to hold and hope for increased value and tracking of gains later, or taking of gains later. Jack, watching my tiny investment of $28.90 in Bitcoin almost double in value over 18 months to $59.89 at the time of my idea made me think about buying new cryptocurrencies as they come to market. $20 spent on alt current coins might turn into nice rewards. Ethereum would be a good example. If I'd been up to date on the altcoins and bought them as they came to the market around 50 cents per coin, $20 investment would be worth $440 today, but just as easily could have been worth nothing. But a $20 here and there, to me, is, is a good gamble for the potential. What say you, sirs, to buying new cryptocurrencies is a buy and hold strategy. P.S. When Bitcoin first started, I, being a tech person, was involved in distributed computing for SETI uh, and sequencing of the human genome. I set up a Bitcoin miner. I have successfully mined 25 Bitcoins. Well, at the time, it was for fun. No one thought it was going anywhere. So I form formatted that computer, losing my 25 Bitcoins. What a hindsight mistake. This was about the same time a guy, in, a guy bought pizzas from Papa John's for 10,000 Bitcoins. Yeah. So there's definitely the potential as these alternative coins, Ether, Ethereum, etc., come out that they could do really well. There's one called Steam right now I'm getting a lot of questions on, which is like in a Reddit system and people vote up or down stories and every time you vote you get a little bit of Steam and the person you're voting for gets a little bit of Steam and it's all done on that. And like my problem with that one, guys, honestly, is I looked at it and almost everything that's getting a lot of action on the boards is an article about Steam itself and anything else of relevance and use and any other... It's just ignored. Um, it seems like a a system is just being gamed, and that doesn't seem like it'll work. But a lot of these other ones, they they seem like they do work. Um, but they work because they're 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 transferable to Bitcoin, and Bitcoin works as transferable into cash, right? And Bitcoin still seems to be kind of the leader of the bunch. So I, I wouldn't fault someone that said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend a hundred bucks on every uh, alternative currency as it comes out. Um, if they had the money, because there's people that are going to go out tonight and they're going to spend a hundred bucks on on drinks and a steak, and they're going to eat that steak and it's going to be gone, and, and it will never be worth anything, right? Uh, other than compost in the future, um, but this stuff might be. But if that was 
in lieu of actual savings, then I, I would say no. You need to focus on things that are more guaranteed, uh, more safe with your savings. Like, I don't know, cash on your mattress, honestly, in some ways. But the truth is, if I looked at any alternative currency coming out today, I would want to know exactly what is its strategy and its, its, its use in an economy. How will it derive value from the economy in which it will circulate? In other words, Bitcoin had a great answer to that question. It does all the things that all cryptocurrencies are doing today. It is a stand-in for cash. It was immediately transferable. If you're not stupid, it's extremely secure. Uh, you can hold it in, in ways that are far more secure than cash. Um, it can be as public or as anonymous as you want it to be in a transaction. Uh, you can you can transfer Bitcoin in a completely auditable way, or you can transfer Bitcoin in a way that's almost impossible for anybody on the outside to determine what happened. Um, and it was fungible. It could be turned into cash. And all it needed to be successful was people to start using it because it was put out in a way that incentivized its mining and production. The people that were mining it were all tech-centric people. They were primarily exchanging services that were non-physical product-based. So they didn't have a inventory burden in money. So if I had server space that I'm selling, yeah, I have a hard cost in the server, but you want to buy web hosting, and I sell my web hosting for $20 a month, and I'm going to take Bitcoin for it on a gamble in the beginning, eh, it's not a big deal. So that gets the first Bitcoin spent. So Bitcoin had an answer to that question. What is its strategy and means by which it will derive value from the economy that it will circulate? And what are the compelling reasons for people to use it? It was low risk, and it made sense. And as people used it, it got used by more and more people. The more people that used it, the greater it derived value from its economy. And you saw Bitcoin go from being worth fractions of a cent to dollar parity to being worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars per unit today. And I wish I would have been as smart as I am now about Bitcoin back when it was under a dollar a coin. Because, yes, I would have become a millionaire. But I can say that about many investments. And, and that's how we have to look at all of these. That Just because it happened before doesn't mean it will happen again. Um, During the dot-com boom, people thought any stock that came out with dot-com and its name you should just buy. And we all know how that worked out, don't we? When we look at Ether, um, Ether has a strategy. I'm not saying it'll work, but it has a strategy. Ether is the currency on the Ethereum um, system. And Ethereum is a blockchain-based platform that is designed to do things like enable contracts to be run through individuals. It basically empowers business between others, and it empowers basically virtual nation-type applications. It is a pathway toward making government, in some instances, in some cases, irrelevant. So it has something that it does. It's not just somebody rolled out a, a clone of Bitcoin, gave it a name, and said, now use it. They, they put something behind it. And if I was going to invest in any sort of cryptocurrency today other than Bitcoin, I would be looking for a cryptocurrency that had a strategy to go with it, not just a cryptocurrency that came out. That brings me back to Steam. Steam also has a strategy. Steam's strategy is basically to replace platforms like Reddit for the sharing of information and make information sharing valuable. Okay, 
great. The problem I see with it is it doesn't seem to work. It seems to be all about self-flagellation, right? It's, you know, every other story that you see is, you know, why steam will be the greatest thing ever, my, you know, my life with steam or what what have you. So, if you created something and I also think frankly that the the Reddit style, you know, the dig style, if you remember dig, right, of information sharing is somewhat weak. I'm one of these people, like, whenever like somebody tells me about Reddit, I'm like, really? People use that still? Right? It's, it, it's, not, it's not as interactive as something like Facebook is. Now, I know Facebook has its problems, but, you know, the video sharing, the picture sharing, the way that it's formatted, the way that it works. There's a reason it's, like, the most popular social media platform on planet Earth. So if someone built something sort of like that, and it was based on a, on a virtual currency. I'd probably throw a few hundred bucks in it. Just, I mean, it might work. I don't know. Because then you would actually start to see the type of thing where people are actually sharing information that other people consider valuable. My other problem with, I don't quite get how both sides can win when I like like your thing and therefore I get steam and you get steam. It would seem to me like for a transaction to be value for value that... I would have to do something to earn it other than saying, I like what you did. Like, I would have to bring value to the table. Maybe Steam does that. I don't know. Not from what I can see. Right? So, in other words, when you became a member of Altcoin Book, right? We'll call it Altcoin Book, right? Or uh, uh, Supercoin Book or whatever. And you started sharing information. To be able to give something, you'd have to first acquire it. So, you'd have to say pay a membership fee. And that membership fee would come with, you know, a thousand tokens or whatever. And then liking something would maybe give a fraction of a token. Uh, sharing it would give maybe two fractions thereof or something like that. And if you really liked it a lot and you felt like it brought value to your life, then you could give your own, like, I want to give this guy a half a token, right? Just want to give it to him because this, this made a difference in my day. It made me laugh, and I felt good. So that's worth a quarter, right? And what's interesting is there's kind of a new age book out there, and this this series went downhill as the four books came out. The first one was the best. It came out in the, in the 90s. It's called The Celestine Prophecy, and uh, written by a guy named James Redfield. He actually talks about this in that as one of the the, the magical nine insights in this, this fake manuscript that doesn't really exist that they're looking for in Peru, right? And... Um, one is that basically the, the human economy will move to a tithe-based economy. Now, check this out. This guy wrote this in like 92, 93. There was no internet like we know of today, right? I mean, there wasn't even... AOL wasn't spamming your mailbox with a little disk to put in your computer that went, you got mail, right? That's how long ago this was. And his basic premise was that we would get to a point in humankind where you and I would meet each other, and we would talk, and it would turn out that you needed something from me, some sort of information. And when you when you realized, oh, Jack gave me that information, that you would then offer me effectively a tithe. Here's here's a buck. Here's two bucks. Whatever. And when I read this, I'm like, not. Nah. It's like you know, like some of you guys look at anarchists, and that's nice. How would that ever work? Well, in an information age, what's more valuable than information? 
And you might say, well, you know, you have all these blogs and there's so much information, there's too much today. Well, that actually makes the dissemination of real information, not just a meme of a kitten holding onto a tree or one that says Donald Trump's an asshole or one that says Hillary Clinton's an asshole, but the dissemination of actual valuable information more valuable. Because how do I filter through it? Well, I don't filter through this type of information. There's this group of people that are so into that that I get whatever I need and I just occasionally say thank you to them. MSB is kind of like that. I mean, you guys do get discounts and stuff, but when you join my MSB, effectively what you're saying is, this show's worth 50 bucks a year to me. Having this show in my life and the information I get from it, the entertainment I get from it, the value that it brings me is worth 50 bucks a year. And I think that it is. I had a guy email me the other day about that. I'm probably going to do the Jack Hacks thing where I give you one a week of how to save money or save time in your life. Um, he said when you put out that you could go to Zeni Optical, and I'll put a link in the show notes today, uh, and get glasses for under $10. Bucks. I didn't believe it. I went and did it. He said he said probably last year he saved over $400 on eyeglasses, and that was with buying more than he ever would have bought, so he has extra pairs. Because he's buying glasses for you know $10 to $25. Bucks. Versus $400, $500, $600 from an optometrist. And they're perfectly good, serviceable glasses. Okay, so that, if you didn't know that already, then what is, and if you wear glasses and you're about to buy a new pair, you know, even if you go like do what I did, I bought like the cheapos. They're like, I think the, the, the frames I picked with the basic lenses with the, just the scratch protection on it, they're like 16 bucks, right? Those same glasses at my eye doctor cost me $200 freaking dollars. But I also have one pair that's like the really good, high-quality, super scratch-resistant lenses. They've got the, uh, the, where the, the photovoltaics where they change to, to dark gray when you're outside and they come back to clear when you're inside. Those would be three, $400. Bucks. I, I paid about $60 bucks for those. Okay, and I chose to like upgrade the hell out of them for that. I also bought like four pairs of plain Jane, like the cheapos, but they have polarized lenses, sunglasses. They just stay that way. Those were like under $20. Bucks. Right? So then I have those in my car when I'm driving. I didn't bring my glasses. I need to wear my, oh, the sunglasses are in my you know, thing. Boom, they're on. And it's not like sunglasses that you guys wear because they're cool. I actually need them to see. But polarized lenses are better for that fishing, etc. That one little piece of information is worth something. And I think that we that that's kind of going to be, I think Steam's on the right path, but whether it'll figure itself out, I don't know. Because right now it looks like, it looks like a grab-ass section, right? But is it worth $100? Bucks? I don't know, maybe it is. Maybe it is, because they are on that path. They just have to figure out how to walk it. And it wasn't like Bitcoin made perfect sense to everybody right away. And it's when things don't make sense that opportunity's there. The concern I have with this is, People thinking, well, I'll throw $10,000 at this. And then if, you know, if it goes like Bitcoin, I'll have $10 million one day. Be very careful. I would put this in the category of, it's like going to the track and betting on horses and you know what you're doing. Right? I think there's enough safety built into, these things generally sort of kind of work that, you, you know, you, you, you still aren't going to win at the track all the time, but you at least know, like, which horses or dogs to pick in general, and you can generally do okay. I think it's kind of like that. You still wouldn't take your kid's college fund down there, and you wouldn't take a big segment of your retirement account and do that. But if you had, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand dollars sitting around that wasn't doing anything anyway, and you could afford to lose it, you might 
build a portfolio in altcoins. Just saying. Let's do a quick one here on automation. Again, this is from Watson. Watson's uh, the IBM project, right? Um, Watson correctly diagnosed as woman after doctors were stumped. After treatment for a woman suffering from leukemia proved ineffective, a team of Japanese doctors turned to IBM's Watson for help, which was able to successfully determine that she actually suffered from a different rare form of leukemia than the doctors originally believed. Watson managed to make this diagnosis after doctors from the University of Tokyo's Institute of Medical Science was fed into the patient's genetic data, which was then compared to information from 20 million oncological studies. This analysis found a different diagnosis for the type of leukemia from which the person, the patient suffered, and it suggested a different form of treatment which provided far more, which proved far more effective than the original methods doctors had been using up to that point. What's next, robot doctors? Watson's success demonstrates the huge potential for data analysis and artificial intelligence, which extends far beyond predicting network needs and following stock market trends. With enough generic data on the right algorithms, tools like Watson can be used for everything from diagnosing rare illnesses to prescribing perfectly correct dosage of medicine based on each patient's personal genetic makeup. Of course, creating the massive DNA repository that would be necessary for this kind of analysis comes with a number of problems, especially when it comes to privacy. While the data could offer a number of medical benefits, it would have intimate knowledge of every person in the database, from their physical features to their ethnic background and more. Another issue is the fact that Watson can only look at existing information on disease, meaning that rare ailments with fewer clinical studies would be harder to detect simply because there's not enough data available. The technology is certainly there for the eventual creation of an AI version of House, as in the doctor house, but there are still plenty of hurdles that will need to be overcome before that day arrives, both in public perception and in government regulation. Hmm, how could we solve that problem? What if all the genetic data that was in the the, uh, the machine uh, was just subject alpha beta zeta one seven nine or five zero seven five five three one five four nine or nine or two one a c three delta bravo tango, right? And you have no way of knowing who that person is. The only person who you'd know who it is is the patient when they're being diagnosed. Do I trust government to do that? No. But it doesn't mean that it can't be done. And I focus on what's going to happen. I'm telling you, this type of thing is going to happen. And the current generation and those being born right now aren't going to have a problem with it the way we do. They're not going to be so worried about whether or not somebody has their DNA. I was in the Army. Somebody probably has, but they definitely have my fingerprints. They probably have my DNA. I, I, my, my belief is if you served in the United States military after 1960 and you had blood drawn, they probably have your DNA somewhere. It's it's probably there, some secret program we don't know about or something like that. I'm not saying it doesn't concern me. I'm saying there's nothing I can do about it. But what I actually see the future of robot doctors as diagnosticians is going to be more along the lines of speeding up diagnosis. Um, being able to diagnose the simple stuff that people go to doctors for that take up doctors' time that doctors really don't need to spend any time on. I mean, I asked my wife one time, I said, honestly, when your last office you worked in, What percentage of people that came to that office actually needed to come to the doctor's office? She said, well, if you don't count like the immunizations and stuff like that, the well baby checkups, like, but you know, people actually deciding, oh, my kid needs to be seen. She said 80% or more didn't need to be seen. 80% didn't need to be seen. 
you wonder why we have long lines and things like that at you know for medical services. Don't you think that if Watson can diagnose a rare form of leukemia, might do a pretty good job at diagnosing something like the common cold, prescribing a treatment for it, and then if that doesn't add up, then that can be you know human reviewed. If somebody says that doesn't seem right, I don't know. Do I think it's a good idea? It isn't. Again, I think sometimes people don't understand. It's not whether I think it's a good idea or not. I'm telling you, it's what's coming. The radical changes technologically in the next 20 years are going to astound even me, and I think I know what to expect. But I know in my heart, I really don't. It is going to be that astounding. Um, right now, Watson is this incredibly sophisticated supercomputer that only IBM has. One day, Watson will be as common as an iPhone. And one day, what's as common as an iPhone will make Watson look like a joke. It's coming, folks. This one comes from Anthony. Anthony says, hey, Jack, I thought I would share this article. The company had to get permission to land on the moon. The moon. Unless America's landing falls under some obscure maritime law. I don't get why they needed permission. But it's interesting that the private industry is outpacing the government. And this is on uh, IFL Science. And I have a link in the show notes for you guys today. Um, but basically, there's a company that's trying to win one of the, the Lunar X Prize, Google's Lunar X Prize, and they've now obtained permission to land an unmanned uh, probe on the moon. Private industry, not government, will do this. Um, and the, I guess the real question there from Anthony is, how can the American government say whether or not you have permission to land on the moon? Well, this goes back to the Outer Space Treaty of uh, 1967 and additional treaties um, specifically mentioning the moon up around, I think, 1978 when these were founded. And what these treaties are designed to do is to keep weapons of mass destruction out of outer space, basically so that you know neither the U.S. nor Russia nor China can take satellites and have them orbiting the planet with uh, nuclear weapons pointed at us. And those treaties also state that no one owns product, you know, things like the moon, and anything done in outer space will be done for the common good of mankind and, and seen as a common thing for all mankind. That no matter what we do, no matter how stupidly we behave on planet Earth, that we will look to space and say, in that realm, we will all treat each other as though we're all equal. Hmm might be easy to do right now because it's so hard to get there. It takes so much effort, and nobody's really figured out how to make any money with it yet. No one's figured out how to claim anything anyway. So, but what if we could treat each other that way, I'm just saying, here on Earth? What if we could sign a treaty like that here on Earth? Just, just a thought. Anyway, um, the way that the United States would be able to say yes or no to this company that wants to land a probe on the moon is that in that treaty, it also specifies that any private industry, any, any individual, anybody who is going to do anything in outer space is also to be seen as subject to the authority of the government that they are part of. So as a citizen of America, citizen of the United States of America, if you want to send a probe to the United States, the United States has, without your permission, 
agreed with the rest of the world, and it pretty much is almost the entire rest of the world that signed this treaty. Um, I think there's a, a dozen or so countries that signed it but never ratified it. But, I mean, if you look at the list, it's, you know, friggin' Afghanistan to, to Zaire on the list. Um, agreed with them that they would police you as a citizen, not so much police the moon. No one says the United States owns the moon. But if a citizen in China was part of a private company that was going to go to the moon, the Chinese government would have to issue permission for its citizen. This was done primarily at the time because it would prevent, let's say, Lockheed Martin from developing a, a Star Wars-like technology in outer space and, and Russia going, hey, guys, you, know, you said you wouldn't do this, and our government going, well, we don't own space and you don't own space. It's common good of man. This is a private company, we, which really, of course, they could pull the strings to. So that was the reasoning in it. I think the reason the government took so much laborious time to approve this is because I think a bureaucrat has a hard time getting their head around. They're going to land on the moon and we have to, what does this mean if we do it or not? The question is, if someone decided to do it, would there really be anything that could be done about it to prevent it, to stop it? How would you stop somebody from doing this? Well, if they're a company based in your country, then the way you could stop them is, you know, you could say they're in violation of an order or a law, uh, international law in this case, and go after them with your police apparatus. Yay, statism, right? So, um, yeah, this is one of those things that I understand why, but do we really need it? You know, wouldn't just banishing the production by anybody of weapons in outer space. Now, there's a lot in this treaty, though. It says things like, if you're... Spacecraft damages somebody else's spacecraft, you're responsible for it. Hmm. It honestly seems to me, when I looked at this treaty, that we use more common sense in how governments of the world deal with each other in outer space than we do on planet Earth. But it is an interesting thing that private companies are now going to reach the moon, and it does look like that's going to happen. And with understanding advancement, this also makes me think of a book I read one time by a guy named Deepak Chopra. Deepak is a uh, medical doctor. He's of Indian descent, and he is one of my many sources of knowledge on alternative health uh, practitioner theories, one of the many people that I read in depth um, over the years. He's about 68 years old now, so he actually was a child and old enough to remember 1969 when men first landed on the moon. And he said he remembered going and running into his grandfather and saying there were men on the moon. And they didn't have a TV. He had heard it from a radio or something and ran home and told his grandfather there were men on the moon. And he said his grandfather looked very distressed and said, I hope nothing horrible happens because of this foolishness. And that just cautions us to not be too conservative when we're looking at advanced technologies and yet still maintain a reality that the wrong technology in the wrong hands is actually very dangerous. But not I don't believe that anything horrible came from us going to the moon. And yes, conspiracy theorists, I do believe we in fact did go. Last one today comes from Lloyd. Lloyd says, I'm, I'm listening to episode 1834 right now and you're discussing a shift of everybody putting their children through homeschooling Thinking about it, do you agree that if the trend shifts to include minorities, that the government will then try to put some kind of regulation to control it? 
What kind of regulations do you think they will implement? I believe government starts to heavily regulate homeschool more than it does now. You will see a shift occur to micro-private schools. Would love to know your thoughts, uh, Lloyd. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't think the government can put that genie back in the bottle. And I, I certainly don't think it has anything to do with minorities. I think that when government really is going to try pushing back, is going to be right about the time that they realize the critical mass of the, of the movement. When they realize how much the movement's growing, and they won't care if it's minorities, they won't care if it's white kids, they won't care if it's girls or boys or freaking, I don't know, Asian transsexuals. It won't matter, right? All that will matter is that the body count is dwindling fast. And, and, and then they're going to have to try to figure out what to do about it. But the, the problem is there's nothing they can do about it at this point. They, they did something governments tend to do when they see a movement as being a fringe movement. They ignored it. They ignored it. Government really never got its panties in that much of a wad over homeschooling in the first place. There's some states where it's easier to do than others, but in most states it's not that hard to homeschool. And in some states... It's amazingly easy. Texas is one of those states where you really don't have to do anything to be able to homeschool in Texas. And the problem for them is how good it worked. So you can't come back now and attack homeschooling when you have homeschoolers kicking ass winning college scholarships, kicking ass winning science fairs, kicking ass winning national spellings. When you have homeschoolers doing better on average, then the average student out of the, the total system, you can't say it doesn't work. You can't say that it's not a good thing. And the more people that do it, the more people you have to fight to do something about it, and the weaker your case that there's something wrong with it. Your only case right now is, well, it takes children out of the public school system. So your, 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 your only case there can be made at the individual school level. So if uh, XYZ Middle School loses 10% of its students, but still has to maintain the infrastructure of XYZ Middle School, and ABC Middle School doesn't lose hardly anybody, then, there's a then they have to rebalance between those public entities. And eventually they have to close the doors on some of them and say we need less schools. But that economic situation makes actually sense for doing just that. Consolidation, reallocation, and in the end... You end up with more money per student in the government school system. They don't have a valid argument. Now, not having a valid argument has never stopped government from doing shit before, but in this case you have the, the, the combined advancement of technology. Where it's, it's, it's now the case that you can give a child a better education at home than government schools ever could. Government schools can't compete with home-based education because they can't tailor the education to the student. They have to they have to conform the student to the education. And it, there's just a limit to holding back. See, what you're talking about is something that's never worked. Government's never been able to sustainably hold back a market ad infinitum. They've never been able even marijuana Even government is not capitulating on marijuana piecemeal here and there because they all of a sudden decided it was a good idea. They've, they've, they've begun to capitulate because the demand is so high and the consequence is so moderate of its use as a recreational drug that they just can't contain it. And eventually they decided to roll with it 
and figure out how to adapt to it. And I, I think you'll see 100% legalization within 10 to 15 years. I, I really do. I think it'll be as easy. And and from that point, you know, you'll, you'll never put that back in the bag either. And I think with marijuana, that's the same thing. It's it's gotten out of the the genie's out of the bottle. And he's not going back in. Same thing with the internet. When the internet started, guys, I remember the early days. Again, we're not talking about. The 1970s internet. We're not talking about the chat boards when I was a teenager that we used to dial into individually. We're talking about the internet, its modern form. When people figured out what a blog was and that they could blog, and people started putting up little websites, and Microsoft came out with something called Front Page, and information started to be distributed, and Yahoo came out as a directory, and then actually became a true search engine, and Google ping into its form, and we had other search engines at the time, like AltaVista and Lycos, that many of you have never even heard of. Um, People started rumors and beliefs that the government would shut the internet down because it, it was it was too powerful. It, it allowed too much exchange of information. Well, it's only gotten bigger and better and faster because once people had a taste of it, you couldn't you couldn't get away with it. And what government is trying to do is figure out well how do we harness it? How do we use it to our own advantages? You know, and if it's taxing billionaires with companies that run on the internet, that's fine. We'll make our money that way. Government's like the mob; it adapts. So, do I think they'll they'll take a stab at it? Maybe here and there. It'll happen more at a state level than a federal level. Um, I do worry about the federal government eventually saying, "Hey, hey, we got to step into this and make sure every child's getting a proper education." But I just I, I think that the movement's too large; it's too strong now. The number of children being homeschooled today in America, the best numbers we have, is about 1.7 million. That's literally 3% of all school-aged children. And that is up 61% over a 10-year period. Over a 10-year period. So it's, it's the fastest-growing educational demographic that there is. And if we just think about, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? I think that it's actually growing faster now. I think in the next 10 years, it at least doubles. And then you're looking at 3.4 million. And that would be 6% of the population. If the population was growing or sustaining, but the population is actually in decline at this point in our history, especially outside of immigration. And if we, if we then subtract... From the public schools, the number of children who do not graduate high school in this country that don't complete that system, we're looking at about 10% of students never even complete school. Um, somewhere between 12 and 7% on whose numbers that you, you look at. Where almost every single homeschooler actually successfully completes their program. However, that's defined for them. And goes on, I mean, if you look at the employment rates of the homeschooled, They're higher. They're higher. If you look at the, the, the successful ventures into entrepreneurism for homeschoolers, they're higher. If you look at the successful completion of college by students that start college, homeschoolers are higher than the average median out of the public school system. I, I just don't think at this point with over a million seven, almost two million people homeschooling, that you can stop the bleeding. I think it's too late. And I say, good. I think that our form of education was an interesting 150-year experiment that's worn itself out. And there has to be a better way. 
And the only way that we're going to see something like mainstream schools adapt is they're going to have to completely reinvent themselves. And I don't think governments have the capacity to do that. I really don't. And I'd just like to say that I know this question was well-intentioned, but I mean, all the time when I, I say things about freedom and liberty and going, I get the, 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 the freaking Eeyores, man. I got one today on my video. I did a video about freedom a couple episodes ago, a couple weeks ago, I guess, uh, where I talked about basically looking at the world and saying, you know, I'm not free because the government taxes me, because the government does this. And I did about a 10-minute, you know, talk on the concept of pushing the edge of the fence. Wherever you're contained, You check every, and eventually you find a crack of the fence and you slip through and you find yet another fence, but you keep pushing further and further out. And I got this comment from this dolt, you know, that was like, well, you're still in, you just want us all to forget about it. I'm like, you can't have listened, right? I mean, it was just utter stupidity, you know. I'm still in a cage. and Okay, well, then you are in a cage if you believe that. So where that comes back to this is, well, they might. Okay, well, government might do a lot of shit. But I'm going to use every speck of freedom I have until they try to restrict it, and then I'm going to fight it. And the more people that use the freedom, the more difficult it is to restrict. The number one way to defend the Second Amendment, get people that are not firearms owners to the range, get them trained, get them to shoot, and help them buy their first gun. Every time you add one gun owner to American society, you reduce the ability of government to restrict firearms ownership rights. Because one more person says, that's me you're talking about. That's my property. You know, well, we only want to take away high capacity because I have one of those and I've killed no one with it. No, you can't have it. Or, in the words of one famous person, you can have my guns, but you're getting the bullets first. Right? That needs to be our attitude about all things. So, don't be afraid to homeschool because the government might someday take it away. Don't be afraid to buy property because the government someday might tax it differently. Don't be afraid. Acting in fear is what got us in the situation we're in. We have to act with boldness. With that, if you like this show and the work I do, do consider becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and that's all I'll say about that today. The other great way you can support us is by doing all your Amazon shopping by going to tspaz.com first. tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z dot com uh, before you uh, before you go to Amazon. Then just click on the link there to go to Amazon. Do all your shopping on Amazon the way that you would do anyway. And once you've done that, then you can, you know, you can go ahead and, and just buy your stuff. And we get credit for your stuff that you buy on Amazon. If you buy dog diapers, we get credit for it. It doesn't matter. I do put out an item of the day, uh, Monday through Friday. Today's is the Weber Kettle Grill. Uh, the uh, the uh, the mid grade one they call it the, the Weber Premium Kettle Grill. Now, I like to cook on the grill just a little bit. Uh, my neighbors, when I lived in Pennsylvania, thought we were crazy because it'd be snowing. I'd be out on the deck, you know, cooking on the grill as though grills don't work when it snows. I don't understand what your problem is. Anyway, um, and I have a really nice gas grill, and I've had a lot of different grills over the years. I have a great big sidebox smoker. I have an electric Bradley smoker, but the 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 one that gets the most workout of all of them, is the, uh, is the Weber Kettle Grill. And it's because it just, it just works. And it works all the time. And it works exactly the way it's supposed to. And you can kind of see that in its history. You know, the first Weber Kettle Grill was made in, I think, 1952 out of an old buoy that the guy that started it cut, and, cut apart and made a grill. And by 56, it looked probably very much so like it does today. And 
you know, not having to change something much between 1956 and 2016, that's 60 years. That certainly tells you something about its efficiency and working well. Now, the reason I recommend the premium one um, is it the, the difference between it and the base model is it has an ash catcher underneath it. And then there's a, a, a vent thing that lets your vents, controls your bottom vents to control your airflow. And you just move it back and forth. It knocks all the ashes through the vent holes. They go down into that ash catcher bucket. You take it off and dump your ashes. To me, that's worth the extra 50 bucks. And you get a lot more. I, I feel like the way it's designed, you get a lot more control in your bottom vents than just having the straight uh, vented bottom with a pan that the ashes fall through. Uh, so they're $149 shipped prime on uh, Amazon. And uh, you can check out my article for item of the day today if you want to on that. But it's a it's a really a great product, and there's a reason that it's been such a good product for so long. And uh, remember, you don't have to buy it. Anything you buy when you go through T-SPAS supports this show and the work I do. Um, Song of the Day is by Cole Reisner. Cole, Cole is a personal friend, and uh, I met him through one of you guys. I was looking for somebody to play at one of my events, and they recommend Cole, and I reached out to him and really liked him, and I've had him play a couple times since, and he'll be playing this fall, I'm sure. Um, but this is from his new album that he just released this summer through a successful Kickstarter, and it's called How It Feels to Me. And I'll let you leave, read the words and, uh, and, and pick your own interpretations of them. It's pretty much a, a song about a, a man and his troubles with a woman. But... I just like the title, How It Feels to Me. I think that one of the things that trips people up in our modern day and age is we assume that the way something feels to us is the way that it feels to everybody else. And without going to like social justice warrior nonsense level, I can acknowledge your feelings even if I don't share them. And I think if we learn to do that more, we'd, we'd get along and there'd be a lot less conflict in the world. And we might understand ourselves better if we understood other people better. So I don't know that that really matters with someone that thinks that you used a word in a way that makes it racist, even though it never was, like the social justice warriors. But when it comes to dealing with you know friends and family and spouses, if you once in a while sit back and think about how it feels to them, you might come up with a lot better solution and how to deal with each other. And we might, you know, spend, send a lot less people to places like, oh, I don't know, divorce court and family court. Just something to think about it. Anyway, I really like this song. just like the way that it sounds. Hope you enjoy it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I can lie to myself and say I didn't see this coming. Truth is, I knew the end was on its way. The long nights, the wrong fights, and the misconversation. And through it all, I'm the one who had to pay. Yeah, we're standing on the edge of mine and your existence. Doing all I can to hold back the pain But sometimes in life you find yourself in the store Just let the clouds open up and start to rain It's how it feels to me But I'm the broken 
Someone's out there 